0: A reading of 100 Vicious Little Vampire Stories, edited by Robert Weinberg, Stephen Z. and Martin H. Greenberg, read to you by Figmentation of Your Imagination. Introduction What is a Vampire? Nearly a century ago, this question wasn't difficult to answer. If you subscribed to the image of the vampire immortalized in Bram Stoker's 1897 novel Dracula, the vampire was evil incarnate, a creature whose supernatural existence and gruesome means of sustenance contradicted the norms by which civilized human beings measured what was natural and morally proper. With his nocturnal habits, the vampire served as a potent symbol for humanity's unenlightened superstitions. In his evocation of primal darkness, he became a counter-symbol of the divinity who turned the darkness of the void into light. In time, Stoker's well-defined boundaries for the vampire eroded. Critics interpreted his vampire as a metaphor for everything from repressed sexuality to foreign immigration. Other writers, inspired by Stoker's example, wove scenarios around their undead that were deliberately different from their model, dressing the vampire up in a variety of different guises and subjecting him to experiences that Count Dracula never knew. As their stories became progressively more modern, so did the vampire, shedding his medieval garb and aristocratic demeanor to better adapt to the contemporary lifestyle and fashions of his time and place. The end result of the vampire's evolution is 100 Vicious Little Vampire Stories, a collection of 100 vampire tales from nearly as many hands in which no two vampires are exactly alike. Here, the vampire runs rampant through the worlds of fantasy, horror, and science fiction, and even mundane worlds in which any suggestion of the supernatural is conspicuously lacking. In the variety of their approaches to the vampire theme and the diversity of their treatments, these stories unconsciously show that there is no simple answer to the question, what is a vampire? More important, they indirectly ask a more problematic question, what is not a vampire? The enduring popularity of the vampire is attributable to a number of factors, but surely the most important is that the vampire's relationship to those around him suggests an entire gamut of recognizable human relationships. Typically, the vampire-victim relationship is thought of in terms of predator and prey. Among some of the atypical predator-prey relationships to be found herein are the Internal Revenue Service stalking tax delinquents, viruses attacking the bloodstream, and radio shock jocks baiting their audiences. The classic blood-sucking vampire lives off the life force of his victims, but some of these vampires feed on the sympathy rendered them by unsuspecting caregivers, the affection of incautious lovers, or the tithes donated by the religious faithful the undead life of the vampire gives back to those infected by his bite is a scourge in most vampire fiction but ask some of the authors represented here might not the immortality imparted be a boon to some the writer the written word the terminally ill in putting together this anthology, we did not intentionally seek modern reinventions of familiar vampire lore. Indeed, there are quite a few traditional vampires working between these covers, but some of these creatures are conjured deliberately to undermine all the expectations that traditional vampire fiction has inculcated. Has In their efforts to wreck original variations on the vampire theme, the writers have imagined ingenious new means of vampire disposal, envisioned vampires interfacing with computers and piloting time and machines, and even proposed more than a few reasons why people might want to be vampires, or at least have one as a close friend. There are vampires here to suit every taste, an intentional pun meant to warn that several of the selections are intended as comic relief. Although all of these stories are short, their cumulative impact is tremendous for they reveal the vampire to be one of the most malleable myths of the modern age, a creature whose characteristics have an eerie resonance for many fundamental human situations and experiences. Their brevity is their brevity notwithstanding, these stories show a wealth of imagination in them. You will find the writers' hearts and souls and some of their blood. Stephen Zemiango C. Manowicz, New York, 1995, and To See Him Smile by Donald R. Burleson. All the old-timers knew the legend and the song. That much Lloyd Bailey came to know, but not until he had lived in the building for a while. Most of the people in the other apartments, he found, were pretty much inclined to keep to themselves. It wasn't just that they didn't talk much to him, the new tenant, they really didn't talk to one another much either, so far as he could tell people drifted down the dreary hallways nodded to you perhaps went behind doors and were gone it was a lonely place all in all if you were used to a more outgoing life but in his current economic doldrums he guessed he was lucky to have anywhere to live at all He had been in the building the last stale and sultry weeks of summer, and the first few slate-gray days of autumn, when he first heard the song, heard it from the lizard-visaged lips of an old woman out on the crumbling front steps. Squatting there like a gargoyle, she was crooning to a pack of ragamuffin children gathered on the dirty sidewalk. He comes in the night in the pale moonlight, he comes when the cold winds sigh, he comes from the gloom of his terrible tomb, and to see him smile is to die." "'Surely a fine thing to be singing to impressionable children,' Lloyd thought, annoyed. "'The kids merely jeered at the old woman and scattered, "'but he thought he detected on their grimy faces "'a certain furtive apprehension mingled with their defiance. "'As they dispersed, there might have been a ghost of a smile "'on the woman's ancient face, or there might not. "'It was hard to tell, but if there was, "'it was a smile that carried with it not the faintest trace of humor. Lloyd spent the rest of that day, as he had so many others, in fruitless job hunting, returning to the bleak old building... On the corner of Ipswich Avenue and 12th Street, only late in the day, and with only minimal enthusiasm for coming home. It was hard to feel at home in a place to which you had come down in life, a place in which you had no roots and no real friends, and as the mid October sun had set by the time he climbed the stairs to his third floor apartment, he thought anew about something that had crossed his mind a number of times before. With rare exception, no one ever seemed to be out and about in the hallways or on the stairs after dark. Even outside, on the infrequent infrequent occasions when he went for a stroll and a smoke, the sidewalks were generally deserted, at least near the building. If you walked far enough down Ipswich Avenue or far enough up 12th, away from this corner, you would eventually meet up with the usual scowling little knots of sullen teenagers or the quiet older couple's walking dogs but around the building where he lived the sidewalks were peopled only by rows of wanly lit windows where unseen hands drew dingy rows of wanly drew through drew, drew dingy blinds down to shut out the night on these occasions lloyd found his loneliness giving way to another less comprehensible feeling a vague nervousness that made him wish to be off the streets as well increasingly he found himself spending whole evenings indoors Among the other tenants, there seemed to be only one who, in time, proved to be a little given to conversation. This was a retirement-age chap who had introduced himself simply as Jack, and Lloyd ran into him in Phillips Park over on 13th Street one crisp Saturday morning. They sat on a bench, drawing their collars tight to their throats, talking quietly and smoking. Lloyd brought up that troubling memory of the old woman and the song, and Jack arched an eyebrow. So, you heard the song? Well, you'd have to sooner or later. I'm not surprised you heard it from her, old oh, Miss Day. She's been in the building she's been in the building longer than most anybody can even remember, I guess, and her family before her. Some of those families have lived there for generations. Place was built in the 1830s, you know. Miss Day's father and my grandfather was playmates in the building when they was kids, if you can believe that. Miss Day has seen everything that ever happened around the place. She could tell some stories, I imagine, but she don't talk much. "'Huh,' Lloyd said. Lloyd said, just sings her creepy songs to the kids. Jack shook his head. Not songs. One song, and it ain't hers. My grandfather taught me that song when I was a kid, and he knowed it when he was a kid. I don't understand. Lloyd said. Why? Nobody's told you about him. Who? Him. The one the song's about. There's a whole legend about him. Go on, Lloyd said, intrigued. Well, he's supposed to be around the place some around the place sometimes outside or in the halls or in the stairwells at night his kind can only be out after dark lloyd laughed oh come on give me a break a vampire jack shrugged and did not look amused "'Call him what you want. Don't make no difference what you call him. "'There's them as seen him. My grandfather seen him. My mother's seen him. i seen him once myself from a ways off. "'Half the folks in the building has probably seen him, if you could get him to talk about it. "'And other folks has disappeared from time to time. "'Like the little Jameson girl last summer. "'They say he probably got her, and maybe he did. "'Amazing,' Lloyd thought, the bizarre folklore that could grow up around a place. "'Well, what's he supposed to look like?' Just an old man, Jack said, lighting another cigarette and looking thoughtful, An old man in ragged clothes and a big heavy overcoat throwed around his shoulders like a cape, you know, kind of the way a wino might look, and always has a scarf or something covering up the lower part of his face. Lloyd thought out loud about the song, and to see his smile is to- and to see him smile is to die. You got it, Jack said, That's the story they tell. If you ever run across him and he drops that scarf or whatever it is. And you see his mouth? Well, the man fished something up from beneath his jacket. It turned out to be a little silver cross on a chain around his neck. I ain't never been all that religious, but I wear this. All the time. You'll say it's silly, I suppose. No, no, Lloyd protested, not if you're really afraid. It's just that, well, I mean, after all those old stories and movies about... And here you tell me there's really a... Is that cross really supposed to protect you?' "'That's the worst part of it,' Jack said. "'The old folks all say don't ever be without one, not if you want to have a chance. "'But they say something else, too. "'They say if it ever comes down to running right smack into him and he smiles at you, "'why then that cross ain't gonna be enough.' "'It was ridiculous, of course, but the man's face was dead serious. "'Lloyd, that afternoon, feeling a little foolish, "'walked up 12th Street to a shop he knew and bought himself a silver cross and a chain.' He hadn't worn one since he was a kid, and he wasn't wearing one now because of Jack's wild story. He just felt like wearing it, and he didn't have to have a reason, not as a free person living in a rational age, or so he preferred to think. It was near the middle of November, with the sky turning blustery and the night's bitter cold, that he first saw something himself. Even though his unemployment benefits and his savings were running dangerously low, he had walked up town and traded himself to a movie, which had, which had let out rather late. He was coming along Ipswich Avenue and nearly home, when, walking past the entrance to an alleyway between his building and the adjacent one, he glanced down the dark crevice between buildings and thought he glimpsed a suggestion of movement somewhere in there. He quickened his pace, but not before someone leaned close to him out of the shadows. It was all over in a moment, but in that moment he had the crazy impression that he was looking into a veiled face, though the face itself, or what was visible of it, was apparently a man's. The eyes, bulging from beneath great shaggy brows, were bright and transfixing, almost feverishly so, and Lloyd had to will himself to snap his own gaze away from the strange half-face, noting, nevertheless, that the mouth was covered by what looked not so much like a scarf as like the tattered fringe of some larger filthy garment that lay below. Dashing up the steps into his building, Lloyd didn't realize until he was halfway up the stairwell that his hand— that his hand, back there, had unconsciously gone to his pendant cross, which he was still clutching when he walked himself in his rooms. He didn't sleep much that night, but it was just as well, because he didn't think that he would have liked his dreams. The day after that encounter, he had tried to tell Jack about it, but Jack seemed either not to want to hear it, or to know already what Lloyd was going to say, or both, "'Lloyd found this disappointing because he needed to talk about it. "'Also about this time it began to happen that when he passed other tenants on the stairs or in the hallways, "'their curt nods seemed to contain something more about the eyes than they had contained before. "'A subtle little expression that might have said, "'You know now, don't you? You've seen. "'Old Miss Day in particular fixed him with a look that he found somehow intolerable.' Had gossip gone around, or could they tell just from looking at him? If they could, his nerves must really have begun to suffer more than he knew. He resolved to keep his mind on healthy subjects, and indeed largely succeeded in doing this, mostly by stepping up his job search, which was for a while longer still unfruitful, but which served to direct his mind away from unpleasant thoughts. In the end, he did find a job washing dishes in a diner over on 15th Street, replacing a boy who had suddenly stopped reporting for work. It wasn't a spectacular job, but Lloyd was glad to have it. The only thing was, it was always dark by the time he got off work. But, despite the disturbing memory of the encounter at the entrance to the alleyway, he made up his mind to brook no more nonsense. This wasn't the Middle Ages or the mountain passes of Transylvania, and he was not going to be afraid like some wide-eyed and superstitious schoolchild to walk home in the dark. Now that he had at least a small income again, he realized upon reflection that a person unemployed and depressed... And insecure could all too readily become credulous, foolishly imaginative, even downright gullible. He felt like telling that character Jack what he thought of his idiotic folk tales, except that he hadn't seen Jack around for a while. Anyway, just because the old timers were uptight about some loony derelict haunting the building, there was no reason to imagine crazy things. In short, it was good to get his composure back. He kept it for nearly a week. The first few walks home, past the alley opening, were uneventful. Fleeting impressions of movement within the maw of darkness between the buildings were surely nothing more than the late autumn wind twirling bits of paper rubbish. With the nearest street lamp half a block away, the light here was uncertain, but at least no febrile-eyed wraith leaned leaned to him out of the shadows." On the night after the first light snowfall, in fact, the walk home along Ipswich Avenue was quite pleasant, with the clouds clearing away to unveil a gibbous moon that made the snow sparkle on the sidewalks and in the doorways where the rising wind silted it in gossamer drifts. And strolling past the alley, he felt emboldened even to go back and explore a bit. There was about an inch of snow on the ground, and even the fact that there were vague footprints in the snow around the alley entrance didn't particularly bother him. He followed them back some distance into the alley where the moon rode just high enough over the brick walls to show him that the prince angled rightward to approach the shattered remains of a basement window dimly outlined in the shadows he was sure that this was the sheltering place of some poor homeless wretch who might well have been living in the building's basement for years or he would have been sure or he would have been sure of it had the two yellow eyes that smoldered there looked more nearly human Lloyd was back out at the alley entrance, down the sidewalk and halfway up the steps to his building, before he realized that he was running. He comes in the night in the pale moonlight, some corner of his mind intoned as he flung open the door and bolted inside and up the stairs. He was on the second floor landing before he looked back down the dusky throat of the stairwell. Was something moving down there? He comes when the cold winds sigh. Lloyd was bounding up the next flight of stairs, sprinting down the dimly lit hallway and fumbling with his key in his door. He comes from the gloom of his terrible tomb. The key turned in the lock, thank God, and he was inside, slamming the door shut and locking it. His heart pounding, he leaned on the inside of the door and tried to get his wind back. When his breathing calmed, he listened with an ear against the door. Outside in the hall, everything was quiet. And then the singing began. As if in uncanny response to his own troubled thoughts, a chorus of lilting, mocking voices seemed to be crooning from somewhere down the hall, possibly from down in the stairwell. He comes, they sang, comes in the. comes in the night, night in the. in the pale moonlight, moonlight. The voices were deranged sounding, out of agreement with each other. Comes when. When the comes when the cold, when the cold winds sigh. It was whiningly high-pitched and ragged like a gaggle of children trying unsuccessfully to sing together. But whatever was going on, at least this was something one could confront, Lloyd reflected, somewhat relieved. It was a group of people, even if they were drunk or crazy. He unlocked his door and stepped out into the hall wind's sigh. He comes from, comes from the, from the gloom. The voices were emanating from somewhere down the stairs. Gloom of his, of his terrible tomb, tomb. Lloyd snorted. He'd see about this. Stepping smartly back down the hall, he felt his annoyance grow. Hadn't he been through enough? He started down the stairs and stopped halfway down between floors. The voices were here all right, but only one figure stood on the shadowy stairs below him. Lloyd's hand went to his throat, fished under his collar, found the chain, the cross. For the figure standing below him was familiar. It had a heavy overcoat draped over its shoulders, and a swatch of cloth covered its face below the fiery eyes. Terrible tomb, the voices sang, how could there be so many of them? And to see, to see him, and to see him smile, they sang. The eyes appeared to wince slyly at the sight of the cross, but held their gaze upon him, and the gnarled hands went up and grasped the cloth and pulled it down and off. Lloyd's earlier impression had been right. The scarf was only the broad fringe of a kind of mantle or shroud that had covered most of the creature's front like some grotesque bib. The thing was face all the way down, and all the mouths were singing. Him smile, see him smile. One puny silver cross certainly wasn't enough. Maybe it would have taken dozens of crosses, one for each needle-fanged mouth. And to see him smile is to die. Lloyd Lloyd tried to back away, but it would have taken running up the stairs backwards. The nightmare face lurched upward, and some of the mouths were still singing when they reached him. The Witness by Mike Ashley. Once again, sleep eluded him. Lay stretched and forced himself out of bed, looking blearily out of the window across the acres of fields. It was a dark, overcast day, threatening rain, just as it had all week. He cursed. Would the sun never appear to allow him to finish his painting? He had only hired the cottage for the week, and at this rate he was never going to finish his assignment. Frustrated, Lay dressed and made himself some coffee. He busied himself more from the need of something to do than for any purpose. He knew he could complete the paintings within the cottage, but he needed the open space and fresh air to invigorate and inspire and to give the full flavor of atmosphere. His publisher's commission had been to capture the spirit of the battlefields of Europe for a forthcoming book, and to do that, he needed to be there, not cooped up in his one in this one-bedroom cottage. He was going to have to venture forth again with his sketch pad and do his best. But he was tired. Why had he not slept? No sooner had he started to, slum- started to slumber than something, he wasn't sure what, disturbed him, and he was awake. All he could remember was that sudden jolt was that sudden jolt when you dream you are falling, only he wasn't falling. Not really. It was more as if he were sinking or being sucked downward. He shook himself from his thoughts. The gathering wind was blowing the branches of a tree just outside the cottage, and and they were scratching at the window. It brought back memories of sounds in the night. He hadn't remembered the wind, but the rustlings had come and gone. "'Oh, pull yourself together, Lay.' He downed a second cup of coffee and finished a slice of toast, and went again to the window. The fields of the Somme stretched out to the horizon, a patchwork of colors. Small hedgerows partitioned the fields into ancient shapes. He could have been almost anywhere in Western Europe, but for the knowledge of the many tens of thousands of men who had died in the battle in these fields, not only in the First World War, but throughout history. Lay shuddered not for the first time at the thought of the carnage. The fields must have been almost perpetually soaked in blood. A vision flashed in his mind for his painting, and he snatched his sketchpad and pencil to capture the image before it was lost. As he did so, his eye was suddenly drawn to a shape in a distant field, something dark and huddled like a man stooping. It seemed to shift slightly in the wind as if it was hobbling. It was difficult to see at this distance, and a part of his mind assumed it was someone walking through the fields, stopping to study something on the ground. The rest of his mind was intent on capturing the image of the rivers of blood flowing down through time. Having caught something on paper, he felt better. Slipping into his wax jacket and boots, he decided to go for a walk. Since he had arrived nearly a week ago, he had only considered the area to the east, and he felt he needed to have a fresh angle on the land. He had been to the visitor's center and local museum to study the history in detail, but he was more in need of the atmosphere and the real essence of the land. He wanted to get away from the modern-day memorabilia and find the natural world. Once outside the cottage, he imme- once outside the cottage he immediately felt better. Despite the lowering sky, it was light, the air was fresh, and the wind was not too cold. Lay had his sketch pad and a hat tucked in his poacher's pocket with his usual array of drawing implements, so he felt suitably prepared. Maybe the rain would keep off and give him a chance to complete some additional rough sketches the narrow road outside his cottage ran up a slight incline before falling away toward a shallow valley as lay crested the rise he stopped to look out across the fields he remembered the photographs he had seen at the visitors center of the anguished and haunted faces of the men caught in a second of time awaiting their fate looking out across the fields he could almost hear the cries of dying amidst the thunder of battle He knew little about the detail of the battles and felt it was not necessary. The author of the book was taking care of that. Lay's assignment was to bring the real essence of those moments back into focus. Suddenly, a flock of crows rose from the field, and Lay was taken aback by the impression of the souls of the dead parting from the battle. Before he knew it, pad and pencil were in hand, and he was lost in his art. It must have been five or ten minutes before he became aware of a further movement in the field he squinted. He could see again that huddled shape, but now in a nearer field. Thinking of the time since he had first seen it, he was surprised it was still in view, but perhaps the person, like himself, was in no hurry and intent on taking in the atmosphere of the land. But then a change in the clouds lightened the scene, and he became aware that it was not a person, but a scarecrow, with the wind whipping its rags. Strange he hadn't noticed it before, but perhaps his thoughts had been elsewhere." He put his pad and pencil back in his pocket and continued along the road, down into the shallow defile, where a small stream guttered under the road and on toward the next bend. An embankment and hedgerows temporarily obscured the field, but as Lay turned the corner, a new scene opened to him, looking down toward a large wood. He knew from the map that a footpath led across from these trees to a ridge overlooking one of the main defenses of the war, where tens of thousands of soldiers had fallen in a futile offensive. The flock of crows that had been his vision of souls had settled in the trees, but now on his approach they launched themselves again, their cawing sounding hoarse against the softness of the land. As Lay neared the trees, the hedgerows fell away, and he was again exposed to the wind, which was now blowing stronger, and had a slight chill to it. You wouldn't think it was May, he mused, as he climbed over a stile into the field opposite the copse. As his feet touched the field, he felt almost a shock. It was as if the very soil had gripped him and pulled him toward it. It reminded him all too suddenly of his dream, or whatever it had been during the night, It lasted only a second, but in that moment Lay felt a weariness spread through him, a lethargy that took longer than the moment to pass. It was with a heavy heart and a slow tread that he followed the path up a steep hill toward the ridge, which he knew would overlook the river Somme. It was the river he now felt he needed to capture in his painting, Blood, Blood the river of life amidst the psalm, a river of death for so many thousands over the centuries. The picture was becoming clearer in his mind, and he hastened to the crest of the hill. There was a sudden flapping sound, and he became aware of the scarecrow he had seen earlier. It was on the other side of a small hedge he was approaching. He couldn't help noticing how bloated it looked. The farmer, for whatever reason, had fashioned a full face out of an old plastic container, the kind Lay had seen containing a liter or two of creosote or stainer. The streaked dark brown of the plastic, together with the eyes, nose, and mouth, which were just cut into the container, gave it an earthy, hollow countenance. Lay paused to look at the scarecrow, wondering why the farmer had gone to that extreme. Rather than the type he was used to, a couple of poles, an old coat, a straw hat, "'a straw had, a straw head and a hat, rather than the type he was used to, "'a couple of poles, an old coat, a straw head, and a hat, "'this one was like a mannequin. "'It was complete with arms and legs. "'Its shirt and trousers were made from black plastic garbage bin liners "'and were stuffed heavily with something. "'It had a smoother, more liquid effect than straw "'and was enough to make the clothing bulge, "'giving the appearance of a fat old man.' Over the shirt and trousers was a long coat with a high collar. It was this coat which reached to the ground that was flapping so noisily in the wind. There was no doubt that it was an effective bird scarer, as the crows circled all around, but none came near. The most disturbing aspect, though, apart from the sinister face, was the way the scarecrow was fixed to the ground. It was not a single pole, but a cross in an X shape two poles were forced into the ground these same two poles being both the legs and arms of the scarecrow it gave the overriding impression of a man crucified and as that thought entered lei's mind so did another vision of the battlefields and death the scarecrow became a symbol of death as it witnessed the carnage and destruction of the war Lay's pencil soon captured the image on paper. As he sketched, he looked again at the scarecrow and noticed how the poles darkened as they entered the ground. He presumed the farmer had treated the poles with some preservative, but he couldn't help thinking that the wood was staining upward as if it was drawing something out of the ground, something dark and brown. Lay shivered at the imagery and finally forced his eyes away from the scarecrow. It was only a few more yards to the top of the hill, and the view of the Somme, but he was feeling tired and sluggish, and it was all he could do to move his feet. They felt almost rooted to the spot, but he finally reached the top, and there before him was the view he wanted. Stretching out down below the escarpment was the flat marshy plain of the river. The fields were alive with poppies, the final image that he required. Linked to the rivers of blood and death, the crows as souls of the dead and now the crucified witness lay felt lay felt he was able to capture both the stark horror and the hope of rebirth he unrolled a plastic ground sheet from one of his pockets and lay it under a tree against which he could rest his back he sat down on the incline and was soon lost in his sketching some while passed and he began to realize how tired he was The last few restless nights had taken their toll, but the invigorating air and the imagery had also had their effect. Before he knew it, he was dozing, and as he dozed, there came a sinking sensation, as if the earth was opening below him. With a jolt, he was awake. He leaned back against the tree, but before long, his head began to droop again. This time, the sinking sensation was not so sudden. "'Instead, he felt he was drifting, buoyed on the crest of a mighty wave. "'It was almost restful, welcoming. "'And then the wave passed, and he began to slide down toward the trough, "'and the sky and land darkened, and water turned to—' "'He suddenly woke and shook his head. "'The sensations faded fast, but Lay felt unnerved. "'He stretched and looked up at the tree above him, "'his eyes following the intricate tracery of branches "'as they waved and crossed in the wind.' They soon became a blur of pattern, and he found himself becoming almost hypnotized by their incessant movement against the violent clouds. The branches and new growth rustled and whispered, shifting suddenly as if to hide a secret. And then, within the branches, just for a moment, something looked back at him. As his eyes refocused, the image vanished, but Lay was left with the impression of two dark, slit eyes and a slit mouth. He forced himself to his feet, This lack of sleep was making him delirious, he felt, and he needed to pull himself together. He looked back at the scene of the former battlefield and envisaged the futile attempt by the thousands of infantrymen to storm this escarpment. All those lives wasted for what? A few yards of mud and filth. As he surveyed the scene, something touched his neck, and his hand reached up instinctively to flick it away his fingers felt something cold caught in the collar of his jacket he pulled it out and looked at it it was a small piece of black plastic he flicked it away and watched the wind catch it and whip it up and over the fields below he settled down again on his ground sheet and continued with his sketching but before he knew it his head began to droop and his eyes closed Into his mind came the sight of the dead and the dying and the blood-drenched fields. The men were looking at him imploringly, with hollow eyes, seeking a savior, someone who would take them back to the golden fields of home and the arms of their loved ones. The men were calling to him in voiceless whispers. He began to feel himself slipping, soaking into the soil, but it was pleasing, welcoming, the land recognized him as a friend a sympathetic soul that could release the pain the soil was rippling like small waves rising about him caressing his body he shivered and woke again looking about him for reassurance the sky had darkened and rain looked imminent he really ought to get back to the cottage, a warm soup and bread, and he'd soon be replenished and able to get on with his painting. But it was such an effort to move, just a few moments more, and then perhaps he could take a shortcut back across the field. He couldn't be much more than thirty minutes from the cottage. But sleep beckoned. Again his head drooped, his eyes closed. Again he was drawn into the earth, the warm, welcoming earth, where thousands of souls had rested before their flight. He could feel something tightening around his wrists and ankles and neck, and a rustling sound was in his head. He tried to move, but was rooted to the spot. Something cold and wet smothered his face, and he began to struggle for breath. He gasped, and the reaction woke him. At that moment, the sky flashed with lightning, and there was a distant rumble of thunder. He rubbed his eyes and face, forcing himself to move. Invisible bonds seemed to lash him to the earth, but with a determined effort, Lay at last was able to rise. As he did so, the ground sheet was caught in a strong gust of wind and flapped up, wrapping itself around his legs and body, pushing him toward the poppy-strewn fields. It required every last breath to force himself against it. When the wind suddenly dropped, he stumbled forward, but another gust caught the ground sheet and carried it away. It rose black against the sky, and Lay couldn't help thinking about the crows and feeling he was witnessing his own soul rising. The effort to regain it was just too much. Lay suddenly felt very lonely and very tired. With leaden legs, he forced himself back toward the hedgerow and some shelter from the wind. He looked around for his bearings. Out of the sight of his eye, he was aware of a movement behind the tree. As he turned his head to look, it was gone, though he was left with the impression of something black. Probably more of that black plastic caught in the wind, he thought. It started to drizzle, and that brought his mind back to the cottage. He knew the way he had come, but he was hoping to spot a quicker route back, perhaps through the field with the scarecrow. But the rain was now starting to fall heavily, and it wasn't easy to see clearly. He reached inside his coat for the hat in his poacher's pocket and touched something cold and wet. His hand jerked back in a natural reaction, and then he felt again. He unzipped his coat and looked inside the pocket. It was soaked by some dark liquid. In horror, he whipped out his pad, checking his sketches. They were okay, though the pad was stained brown around the edges. He started to put the pad away into one of his outer pockets, only to find this was soaked as well. He pulled out his hat, which was stained with the dark brown liquid. The puzzlement overrode any repulsion, as Lay first wondered whether he'd left his coat somewhere wet, or just what he had done. Then he began to think more about the liquid and what it was. It looked like the brown stain he had seen on the scarecrow's legs. In fact, it almost looked like blood after it had soaked into cloth. As the rain beat down, Lay felt compelled to put his hat on, though he felt a little queasy about it. He rationalized the liquid had come from the outhouses at the cottage, where he had rummaged on the first day, and though this didn't convince him, he tried not to think any further. His prime concern was to get back to the cottage. He looked up, right into the face of the scarecrow, and the shock made his heart thump. The evil slit eyes looked straight into Lay's, and the mouth grinned. The scarecrow's coat flapped noisily in the wind. "'Leigh couldn't understand how he came to be standing by the scarecrow, "'as he had no recollection of crossing into the field. "'He stepped back, and the scarecrow stepped with him. "'A trick of the light? A sudden gust of wind? Lei had no idea, but it unnerved him. "'He stepped to one side and almost felt the eyes follow him. "'He looked away from the scarecrow for a moment to work out where to go, "'but the rain and wind were beating against his face, and he couldn't be sure.' "'The Scarecrow's coat was flapping in the wind. "'Then it moved again. "'This time Lay was sure. "'No matter how much his, la- his rational mind told him it had not, "'his eyes told him it had. "'Lay turned and ran, but his feet sank into the earth, "'which the rain was rapidly turning to mud. "'His mind briefly captured a vision "'of the mud-strewn battlefields of the Somme, "'the soldiers up to their ankles in water in the trenches.' Then the flapping of the scarecrow's coat reminded Lay how close it was, and he struggled again to move to his feet. But with each step he was getting deeper and deeper in mud. He was drained of all energy and could not move. It was then, in a dreadful vision, that Lay saw his ground sheet again, rising on the wind and flapping toward him. A flock of crows, frightened by the sight, took cawing into the air, their wings turning the sky to black, Like a twisting wraith, the sheet curled in the air, alive with the storm. Rooted to the ground, hypnotized by the sight, Lay heard a skelch in the mud behind him. Before he could turn his head, the flapping coat of the scarecrow closed over him. He was aware of a damp, oily smell and a wetness around his neck. Then... He was struck by the full force of his ground-sheet as it wrapped around him, bonding him to the scarecrow. Its arms became his arms, its legs his legs, and with that came a sudden surge of strength from the soil. The blood of centuries bubbled from the ground, and Lay heard the screams of armies in his head. The whole agony of war paralyzed his brain, and the sense of anguish and futility permeated his veins. His body relived a thousand dying moments, and then all went quiet. The wind dropped. The rain ceased. The clouds began to part, allowing a watery sun to cast a wan light across the mud-streaked fields. A lone scarecrow, fatter now than ever, bowed its head from the light and waited. Conversion by Ramsey Campbell. You're inside of home when you know something's wrong. Moonlight shivers gently on the stream beyond the cottage, and trees stand around you like intricate spikes of the darkness mounting within the forest. The cottage is dark, but it isn't that. You emerge into the glade, trying to sense what's troubling you. You know you shouldn't have stayed out so late, talking to your friend. Your wife must have been worried, perhaps frightened by the night as well. You've never left her alone at night before. But his talk was so engrossing, you feel that in less than a night you've changed from being wary of him to understanding him completely, and his wine was so good, and his open-throated, brightly streaming fire so warming, so warming that you can now remember little except a timeless sense of, comfor- of comfortable companionship, of communion that no longer needed words, but you shouldn't have left your wife alone in the forest at night, even behind a barred door the woodcutter's cottage is nearby at least you could have had his wife had his wife stay with yours you feel disloyal perhaps that's what has been disturbing you always before when you've returned home light has been pouring from the windows mellowing the surrounding trunks and including them like a wall around your cottage Now the cottage reminds you of winter nights long ago in your childhood when you lay listening to a wolf's cry like the slow plummeting of ice into a gorge and felt the mountains and forests huge around you, raked by the wind. The cottage feels like that, cold and hollow and unwelcoming. For a moment, you wonder if you're simply anticipating your wife's blame, but you're sure it's more than that. In any case, you'll have to knock and awaken her. First, you go to the window and look in. She's lying in bed, her face open as if to the sky. Moonlight eases darkness from her face, but leaves her throat and the rest of her in shadow. Tears have gathered in her eyes, sparkling. No doubt she has been crying in memory of her sister, a sketch of whom gazes across the bedroom. "'Gazes across the bed from beside a glass of water. "'As you look in, you're reminded of your childhood fancy "'that angels watched over you at night, "'not at the end of the bed, but outside the window. "'For a second, you feel like your wife's angel. "'But as you gaze in, discomfort grows in your throat and stomach. "'You remember how your fancy somehow turned into a terror "'of glimpsing a white face peering in. "'You draw back quickly in case you should frighten her. "'But you have to knock.' You don't understand why you've been delaying. You stride to the door and your fist halts in midair, as if impaled by lightning. Suddenly, the vague threats and unease you've been feeling seem to rush together and gather on the other side of the door. You know that beyond the door, something is waiting for you, ready to pounce. You feel as if terror has pinned you through your stomach, helpless. You're almost ready to flee into the woods, to free yourself from the skewer of your panic. Sweat pricks you like red-hot Scattered on your skin, but you can't leave your wife in there with it, whatever nightmare it is, rising out of the tales you've heard told of the forest. You force yourself to be still, if not calm, and listen for some hint of what it might be. All you can hear is the slow, sleepy breathing of the wind in the trees. Your panic rises, for you can feel it beyond the door, perfectly poised and waiting easily for you to betray yourself. You hurry back to the window, but it's impossible for you to squeeze yourself in far enough to make out anything within the door. This time a stench rises from the br- rises from the room to meet you trickling into your nostrils it's so thickly unpleasant that you refuse to think what it might resemble you edge back terrified now of awakening your wife for it can only be her immo- her immobility that's protecting her from whatever's in the room "'But you can't coax yourself back to the door. "'You've allowed your panic to spread out from it, "'warding you farther from the cottage. "'Your mind fills with your wife, lying unaware of her plight.' Furious with yourself, you compel your body forward against the gale of your panic. You reach the door and struggle to touch it. If you can't do that, you tell yourself you're a coward, a soft, scrabbling thing afraid of the light. Your hand presses against the door as if proving itself against a live coal, and the door swings inward. You should have realized that your foe might have entered the cottage through the doorway. You flinch back instinctively, but as the swift fear fades, the panic seeps back. You can feel it hanging like a spider just inside the doorway, waiting for you to pass beneath. A huge, heavy, black spider ready to plump on your face. You try to shake your panic out of you with the knowledge that it's probably nothing like that, that you're giving in to fancy. But whatever it is, it's oozing a stench that claws its way into your throat "'and begins to squeeze out your stomach. "'You fall back, weakened and baffled. "'Then you see the rake. "'It's resting against the corner of the cottage "'where you left it after trying to clear a space for a garden.' you carry it to the door, thinking. It could be more than a weapon, even though you don't know what you're fighting. If your wife doesn't awaken and draw its attention to her, if your foe isn't intelligent enough to see what you're planning, if your absolute conviction of where it's lurking above the door isn't false, you almost throw away the rake, but you can't bear the sense of your wife's peril any longer. You inch the door open. You're sure you have only one chance." you reach stealthily into the space above the door with the teeth of the rake then you grind them into your prey and drag it out into the open it's a dark tangled mass but you hurl it away into the forest without looking closer for some of it has fallen into the doorway and lies dimly there its stench welling up you pin it with the teeth and fling it into the trees "'Then you realize there's more, "'hanging and skulking around the side of the doorframe. "'You grab it with the rake and hurl it against a trunk. "'Then you let your breath roar out. "'You're weak and dizzy, but you stagger through the doorway. "'There are smears of the thing around the frame, "'and you sway back, retching. "'You close your mouth and nostrils and you're past, safe.' "'You lean on the rake and gaze down at your wife. "'There's a faint stench clinging to the rake, "'and you push it away from you, against the wall. "'She's still asleep, no doubt, "'because you were mourning her sister all last night. "'Your memory's blurring. "'You must be exhausted, too, because you can remember... "'You can remember hardly anything before the battle you've just fought.' you're simply grateful that no harm has befallen her. If she'd come with you to visit your friend, none of this would have happened. You hope you can recapture the sense of communion you had with him to pass on to your wife. Through your blurring consciousness, you feel an enormous yearning for her. Then you jerk alert, for there's still something in the room. You glance about wildly and see beneath the window more of what you destroyed, lying like a tattered snake. "'You manage to scoop it up into one piece this time, and you throw the rake out with it. "'Then you turn back to your wife. You've disturbed her. her. "'She has moved in her sleep, and fear advances on you from the bed "'like a spreading stain pumped out by a heart, "'because now you can see what's nestling at her throat.' You don't know what it is. Your terror blurs it and crowds out your memories until it looks like nothing you've ever seen. It rests in the hollow of her throat like a dormant bat, and indeed it seems to have stubby, protruding wings. Its shape expands within your head until it is a slow explosion of pure hostility, growing and erasing you. "'You turn away, blinded. "'It's far worse than what you threw into the forest. "'Even then, if you hadn't been fighting for your for your wife, "'you would have been paralyzed by superstition. "'Now you can hardly turn your head back to look. "'The stain of the thing is crawling over your wife, "'blotting out her face and all your sense of her. "'But you open your eyes an agonized slit "'and see it crouched in her throat as if it lives there. "'Your rage floods up and you start forward.' "'But even with your eyes closed, you can't gain on it "'because a great cold inhuman power closes about you, "'crushing you like a moth in a fist.' "'You mustn't cry out, because if your wife awakens, it may turn on her. "'But the struggle crushes a wordless roar from you, and you hear her awake. "'Your seared eyes make out her face, dimmed by the force of the thing at her neck. "'Perhaps her gathered tears are dislodged, or perhaps these are new, "'wrung out by the terror in her eyes. "'Your head is a shell full of fire. "'Your eyes feel as though turning to ash, but you battle forward.' "'Then you realize she's shrinking back. "'She isn't terrified of the thing at her throat at all. "'She's terrified of you. "'She's completely in its power.' You're still straining against the Force, wondering whether it must divert some of its power from you in order to control her when she grabs the glass from beside the bed. For a moment, you can't imagine what she wants with a glass of water, but it isn't water. It's vitriol, and she throws it in your face. Your face bursts into pain. Howling, you rush to the mirror. You're still searching for yourself in a mirror when the woodcutter appears in the doorway, grim-faced. At once, like an eye in the whirlwind of your confusion and pain, you remember that you asked his wife to stay with yours yesterday afternoon when he wasn't home to dissuade you from what you had to do. And you know why you can't see yourself. Only the room and the doorway through which you threw the garlic, your sobbing wife clutching the cross at her throat, the glass empty now of the holy water you brought home before setting out to avenge her sister's death at Castle Dracula. "'Apotropaics' Norman, by Norman Partridge. "'I was heading for the creek, whistling Heartbreak Hotel, "'and minding my own business when Ross caught up to me "'and told me about the vampire at Todd Palmer's house. "'Jason,' he gasped, doubling over as he caught up to me, "'man, we thought you'd never get home from vacation. "'Todd and Dave and me, we didn't know what to do, "'but now that you're back,' he left the sentence unfinished. Suddenly he wore the relieved look of a tired pitcher who'd just been pulled from a tough game. He straightened, still a head shorter than me, even though we were both eleven, and he shot the look my, w- and he shot the look my way one more time, just to be sure that I hadn't missed it. I flicked his Brooklyn Dodgers cap off his head. Pull the other one, Ross. You guys have probably been planning this for two weeks. I sighed. Come on, Bella Lugosi and Corn Country. Is that the best you can do? Isn't it bad enough that my folks? dragged me through 22 states in 14 days, and man, all I've got to show for it is this chintzy knife from y'all's, from y'all's night. I pulled the knife fast enough to make Ross jump. He's a hopeless coward. It wasn't really chintzy, but it wasn't the one I had wanted either. That one, that one cost 10 bucks and had an authentic ivory handle. My old man wouldn't go for it, though, so I had to settle for the 2 bucks special that had a genuine plastic handle with a hand-painted view of Half Dome hand-painted in Taiwan, that is. Ross stared at the knife. No, he did more than stare. His gaze was riveted on the shiny blade. Oh, man, he said, this is scary. I mean, you buying a knife? It's like you're psychic or something. I swear to God it is. What are you talking about? Come on, and I'll show you. Ross scooped up his cap, and we walked the short distance to Palmer's cornfield. We hopped the fence and blazed a trail between two rows of dead corn stalks. I was surprised that Mr. Palmer hadn't plowed the field and planted another crop. Todd's dad was usually real quick about that kind of stuff. My dad always said that Mr. Palmer was a hard man, a man who didn't brook nonsense. That was the way Todd's dad managed his farm, pushing its crop potential to the limit, and my dad seemed to think that it... And my dad seemed to think that was the way Mr. Palmer handled his kids, too. But something had slowed Mr. Palmer's clockwork pace. Maybe for once he hadn't had time. Or maybe he'd wanted a vacation of his own. Or maybe. Maybe anything. Who knows why things happen? I mean, really. People say things. They do things. But whoever knows why, really? Ross pushed between two tall stalks that crackled like ancient parchment. I followed. I followed we cut through a couple more rows and came to the center of the field and there it was a naked mound of dirt dark clods dried gray and hard in the hot sun A grave, I thought, shivering. It wasn't an ordinary grave either, not just because it was in the middle of a cornfield. Embedded in this grave, punched into it like it was some weird pincushion, were dozens of stakes and knives tin stakes, survey stakes, Boy Scout knives, ordinary silverware, putty knives, and fancy stuff that must have been pure silver. Ross was talking again. "'We had to steal some of them. "'Christ, my mom will kill me if she finds out I took Aunt Alma's silver. "'But we had to, because we can't let him come back. "'Oh, man, he'll be pissed if he comes back, "'and I don't want to think about what he'd do to to Todd and to me and Dave "'because we helped Todd. "'He bent low, making sure that the stakes and knives "'were firmly planted in the hard ground. "'So we stuck this stuff into the grave, "'and he can't get out without killing himself again. "'That makes sense, don't it, Jace? "'I mean, you know how this stuff works.' Ross kept talking, the way he always does, but I wasn't listening. It was my turn to stare, my turn for riveted gazes, the churned dry dirt of the grave, the stakes, brown and hard and smooth like weird roots, the knives, hilts glistening in the morning sunlight, the clumps of earth like dead fists, not dead, undead, because this was a vampire's grave. Standing there, surrounded by oak trees that were a good hundred years old, Todd's big house looked small. The Palmers had lived on the outskirts of Fiddler for for three generations, and the house had stood the test of time. A couple coats of white paint every two years helped, and so did old man Palmer's skill as a carpenter, but I always thought that there was something about the way the house rested under those big trees that helped protect it. Today, it didn't look protected. It looked trapped, ensnared by a hundred gnarled arms, all twisting toward it and holding it down. Todd answered our knock. He didn't look right. There was a deep green bruise on his jaw, and his eyes were red, and it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that he'd been crying. Ross opened his trap and started to whisper too loudly, and Todd held a finger to his lips. "'My folks are gone,' Todd said. "'They headed down to see Grandma in Early Mart. "'They don't think she's going to make it this time, and she won't go back to the hospital. "'Sis is upstairs, sleeping again. "'That's all she does lately. "'He opened the screen door. "'Come in, but be quiet.' We followed Todd through the living room. It was stark, like a room where no one lived at all. No TV, no hi-fi, no coffee table, certainly no magazines or flowers. Just a worn rocker, a few chairs so stiff that even the doilies on their arms seemed out of place, and a big wrought-iron cross hanging over the fireplace. A cross that a hard man would appreciate, I thought, and then I felt kind of weird because it was a thought my dad would have anyway todd moved down the hallway his right shoulder rubbing the flowery wallpaper he came to a little table by the staircase and picked up the telephone he didn't have to dial it was a party line and dave's mom was in the middle of a call i hate to interrupt mrs sanchez todd said his voice quiet but firm can i talk to dave it's kind of important mrs sanchez must have agreed because todd didn't say anything else in a town like Fiddler where everybody thinks they know everybody else's business a kid with a dying grandma can get away with anything we stood in the quiet hallway waiting for dave to come to the phone i stepped to the foot of the staircase a doorway stood open on the landing above i saw a bed and someone's arm dangling over the side the person in the bed rolled over just as i started up the stairs and i saw long blonde hair and a white nightgown dipping low over a white shoulder Janet Palmer, Todd's sister. Her eyes caught mine, but it was like they weren't quite focused. Dave, she whispered, is that you? I'm sorry, Dave, I'm so sorry. I backed down the staircase, embarrassed, and didn't say a word. Todd said a couple words to Dave, because that was all it took. Then he grabbed my shirt tail, and I turned and saw those red eyes of his. I couldn't read them at all. Upstairs, Janet was crying. Come on, Todd said, meeting time. We sat under Todd's front porch. The air was still and cool. There was enough room for kids to sit comfortably, but not enough room for adults, so it was the perfect place to go when we didn't want to be bothered. Tell us what to do, Jace, Ross said. Tell us if we done right. I mean, you know about this stuff. You read all those monster magazines and see all those movies. Yeah, I nodded. You've said that about a jillion times today. Dave laughed twirled his drumsticks and did a little drum roll on the rubber pad the band teacher had given him so he could practice over the summer. His folks weren't too well off, and he couldn't afford a snare drum, let alone the fancy set he wanted. Dave carried the practice pad with him everywhere. He put up with concert band, but he really wanted to rock and roll. He said he was going to get out of Fiddler and tour with Richie Valens or something like that. Dave was the coolest kid I knew, the leader of our group, and I felt like he was about five years ahead of us in almost everything. Girls liked him, and he didn't put on a show with them or pretend that he minded their attention. So, who's going to tell me what's going on, I asked. Ross started blabbing again, and I cut him off with a hard glance. Todd didn't look like he was up to talking. Dave shrugged and started in, setting his drumsticks aside. I guess I was the first one to figure out what was going on, he sighed. "'But I don't really want to talk about it. "'It was hard enough to tell Todd the first time "'and to do it again. "'You gotta tell,' Ross put in, "'and then he buttoned up before anyone could punch him. "'Yeah, I gotta tell,' Dave sighed again. "'You know that we've got a party line with Todd's family. "'Well, I got so I would listen in every now and then. "'At first it was just for fun. "'One time I heard Mr. Palmer cussing out some tractor salesman, "'and I heard Mrs. Palmer gossiping with Ross's mom almost every day.' He paused. His eyes locked on his drumsticks as if he didn't dare look up at me and speak at the same time. But, to tell you the truth, Janet was the one I really wanted to hear when I picked up the phone. I glanced at Todd. His eyes were glazed over, and he was rubbing the welt on his jaw. I knew then, even before Dave said what he was going to say, that Todd would rather get punched out than listen to Dave's story again. Suddenly, I knew what kind of story it was going to be. People say things, they do things, and sometimes they even tell the truth. "'Dave went on, still looking down at his drumsticks. "'I know that she's six years older than me. I know that. "'But when I'd hear Janet talking to her girlfriends, I didn't miss a word. "'And when she wouldn't tell them the name of the guy she had a crush on, "'I'd imagine that she was talking about me. "'And when she told Ross's sister that she was in love with a guy who was in love with her too, "'I imagined that she knew how I felt about her without me even saying, "'and that she felt exactly the same way about me.' "'Without even saying,' Todd whispered, still rubbing his jaw. "'Dave nodded, still looking down. "'Tell him what happened next,' Ross blurted. Tell him, ab- "'Tell him about the vam "'Shut up, Ross,' I said. "'Yeah, shut up,' Dave said, but his voice didn't have any strength. "'He looked at me, and I knew that it took everything he had just to hold my gaze. "'He didn't look like a leader anymore. "'He didn't look like a guy who had everything figured out. "'He looked like an eleven-year-old boy who'd been scared by an expert.' he kept talking. It was two weeks ago, just about the time you left on vacation. I got up around midnight to get a drink of water. I don't know why, but I picked up the phone, even though it was late. I heard him then. I had to strain to understand him, because his voice was so quiet and smooth. Her voice sounded the same way, but I'd never heard Janet talk like that before. It made me feel sick, some of the things she said, and the hard way he laughed when she said them. Dave swallowed and I felt sick too, because suddenly I knew she hadn't been talking about me when she talked to her girlfriends. I wanted to hang up, but I couldn't, and then came the worst part. He said, you think your little friend is listening? You think he's getting a thrill? And she just laughed. I hung up then. I didn't even try to be sneaky. I'm sure they heard me. I tried to go to sleep, but all I could do was toss and turn. I knew that I'd never be able to look Janet in the eye again. And then, in the middle of the night, I heard a motorcycle out on the road, full open and racing fast. I got out of bed and ran to the window, just in time to see that Janet... "'to see Janet riding with him, her arms wrapped around his chest, "'her fingers digging into his leather jacket, her blonde hair blowing in the wind. "'They headed up the road, toward wherever he was from, I guess, "'and they came back about an hour before dawn. "'That should have been the end of it. "'Even then I thought it was spooky that they knew I was listening to them that night. "'I mean, I knew it was weird. Too weird. "'Dave's voice quavered with shame. "'But I couldn't stop listening. "'I heard them every night, the things they said.' Some of them said to me, because they knew I was listening, and I heard the motorcycle roaring out on the road, coming and going, night after night, and then one day I heard Tom's mom talking to Ross's mom. I heard it too, Ross said. I mean, Mom told Dad about it. She said that an evil boy was sucking Janet Palmer dry, sucking the blood of Jesus right out of her, and dragging her straight down to hell. Your mom is pretty wild with the fire and brimstone bit, I said. She said worse stuff about me, I'll bet. No way, Ross said. She was serious. She knew that this guy was a vampire. She knew it, but she was afraid to say the word. Dave shook his head. I don't know, Jace. Maybe you're right. But if you'd heard this guy. But if you'd heard this guy. If you'd heard the things that he said. Or if you'd seen what he did, Ross put in. I didn't see it. Not myself. But Todd was there when it happened. Todd saw the whole thing. Todd stopped rubbing his jaw. He started talking but his voice was distant like it wasn't a voice at all but a little machine that had clicked on inside of him. We went to see grandma, mom and dad and me. You guys know how sick she is. Janet didn't go. She said she was she said that she wasn't feeling well. She whispered something to mom about the way she felt and mom blushed and said it was okay for her to stay home. Grandma talked for a long time. It was fun to listen to her. She talked about her courting days and how wonderful Grandpa was back then. It was like she wasn't sick at all. She fell asleep with a smile on her face. We got home late. Dad saw the motorcycle parked by the barn. He stopped the car at the end of the driveway, got out, and started for the house. He was walking fast, but he didn't run. Mom just sat there in the front seat, not moving at all. I sat in the back, staring at her hair. It was all neat and a bun, and it didn't move either. It was like she was a dummy or something. I remember thinking that. Todd lay back and closed his eyes. Maybe it helped him remember, or maybe he wanted to hide from us. He said, I heard Janet scream, and I scrambled out of the car. Mom was yelling at me, but I didn't stop running. I banged through the screen door, and the screaming was really loud, like it was bottled up in the house. I almost stopped running when I got to the foot of the stairs, but it was too late. I took them three at a time, and then I was in Janet's room. She was in the corner, all twisted up like she wanted to hide. She didn't have any clothes on, and I saw the bruises on her neck where he'd... And there were bruises on her boobs, too. He sobbed. And then I saw the blood. I saw where she was, bleeding. It was on her legs and... and Todd was crying now, and there was no stopping his tears. And there was blood on the sheets. Dad pinned the vampire to the floor with his knees, straddling him. The guy, the the thing, it was real white. Its arms and legs were long and skinny like it was a big spider. Dad had the wrought iron cross in his hands, and he bashed. And he hit the thing again and again, and the guy, the vampire, was twitching, and Janet was crying, and its arms and legs were twitching, and and the cross, it, it worked, and... Dave's hand dropped into to- dropped onto Todd's shoulder. Todd stopped talking, but he couldn't stop sobbing. That was what happened. Dave said. Todd's dad sent him to bed hit him hard when Todd tried to go back to Janet's room. He told jo- he told Todd that the guy was okay, that he'd only beat him up so he wouldn't come back and hurt Janet again. But Todd knew that wasn't true. He could see the cornfield from his bedroom window, and he saw his father go out there that night and dig a grave. But Mr. Palmer didn't put a stake in the vampire's heart, Ross said. At least we don't think so. That's why we put the knives and stakes in the grave, because Todd saw Janet. He saw that blood. He knew what really happened. It really happened, I said. Everything you told me, it really happened. They nodded. No one said anything for a time. Then Ross started in again. Again, It's just like they said. It's true. Every word. I mean, the vampire only came at night on the phone he knew that dave was listening they can read minds right and the things that said to janet and the things that made her say they can hypnotize people you know make them say or do anything and the blood Todd saw the blood. Ross hugged himself, rocking back and forth. "'It's scary. I mean, I found where Todd's dad hid the vampire's motorcycle. It's down by the creek. It's black. It's all busted up now, but it doesn't have any mirrors, and I bet it never did. Understand? It doesn't have any mirrors. He was rocking like crazy now. I don't think the vampire can come back. We did the right thing, didn't we, Jace? It can't come back, can it?' I shook my head. "'Dave's drumsticks thrummed gently on the practice pad, but he couldn't find a beat. "'It's hard,' he said, and he almost sounded like Ross. "'It's hard to know what we should do next. "'I looked at them, and I was with them, and I wanted to help them. "'I looked at Todd. He couldn't do it. "'He was the son of a hard man, and he'd been broken. "'Dave couldn't do it. He was still in love. "'If he heard Janet say how sorry she was, he'd never forget it. "'Ross couldn't do it. Not on his best day. Not ever.' She won't get up, Todd said. She won't eat. Dave started to cry. Gently, I slid the drumsticks out of his hands. I opened my new knife. Sometimes people say things. Sometimes they do things. But nobody said a word, and nobody moved while I sharpened the stakes.